At this point, I believe uh, that children kindergarten through second grade are welcome to primary church, if that's what you do. Uh, If not, you can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 7. I'm sorry, Luke 11. Um, If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You should be able to find the text in your order of worship or on your phone or any other approved uh, reading device. So, I say, do you hear the word of God? While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give alms as those that are with things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in synagogues and greetings in marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning as we come before you, as we, as we seek to learn from your word, that you would bring grace and comfort even now. Uh, even now as we are confronted uh, with our own sin, our own hypocrisy, uh, I pray that, that those things that we brought in with us, we'd sort of be able to leave behind and focus. Father, I pray that you'd open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. I want to start out with a sort of cultural trivia quiz. If you're my, I'm 48 years old, and so I'm, I'm the exact age. So if you're, if you're my age or younger, this might rock your world a little bit, so forgive me. So the question I have, do you, do you remember this guy? Iron Eyes Cody. Do you remember him? Okay, Iron Eyes Cody, if you're older than I am, you would have known him because he had some pretty famous friends like John Wayne and Steve McQueen and Gene Autry, right, the singing cowboy. He was one of the most famous Native American movie stars of all time. He was at one time, he was rated as the most beloved Native American in our country. And I remember it was 1971 on Earth Day. And I remember because it seems like they always used to play it during Saturday morning cartoons. And so basically it was this Indian guy. He would ride his horse and it was was just litter and pollution everywhere. It was was heartbreaking. And then he would sort of paddle his canoe up through sort of a sludgy uh, river and through all the pollution. And then he would stand on the shore and then the camera would pan to his face and one single tear would be coming down his face. Right, and the, and the, basically the tagline was, I think it's written on that thing, right? People start pollution. People can stop it. Right? And I'm sure that launched a generation of environmentalists, a generation. I mean, frankly, I remember as a little kid, like yelling, hey, mom, you shouldn't be a litter bug, right? All these things. That was all Iron Eyes Cody. Problem is, Iron Eyes Cody, uh, he wasn't actually um, a full blooded Cherokee. He wasn't even a full-blooded Mohawk, Iroquois, Nespierce. Iron Eyes Cody was a full-blooded Italian. He was Italian. By the way, the the person who outed him 
was another famous Native American named Jay Silverheels. Remember him? He's Tonto from the original Lone Ranger. He listened to Iron Eyes and Cody's stories, and he's like, oh, something no sound right, Kemosabe, right? And so he sick some people on it, and an investigative reporter went in 1996. They went to, to Iron Eyes Cody's hometown in Louisiana and not only confirmed that he was 100% Italian on both sides of his family, but that his whole small town knew that. In other words, no one in the small town said, he's not a Native American. They all were perpetrators in his crime. And so the question is, what is his crime? It's a pretty common one. In fact, it's the most common one I could think of. It's hypocrisy, right? He's a hypocrite. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be one thing on the outside, Cherokee in his case, when in fact you're Italian on the inside. They don't match up. See, here's, here's the question for you this morning. Let me ask you this. Before you, you, you spew too much ire emotionally toward iron eyes for lying to you all these years, um, ask yourself this question. Uh, are you, me, are you as good on the inside as you appear to be on the outside? Hearing crickets, I will assume that all of you would agree that, that no one is as good on the, as they want to appear on the outside as they are on the inside all of us at some level are hypocrites right that's that's what jesus addresses today is this whole issue of hypocrisy i was talking to one of the greeters before the first service and i said the the, the great thing when you have to preach about hypocrisy i preach through books and when it comes up you do is, is that i am immediately overwhelmed with the the number of, of of examples of hypocrisy in stories of hypocrisy and hypocrisy i have to deal with that i almost don't know how to sort through it and i said and that was just me yesterday in other words, it's really a pretty big deal. Jesus is going to talk to us this morning about it. He talks to the Pharisees. We're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the heart of hypocrisy. At the end of the day, what, what is it that makes someone a hypocrite? Jesus is going to give us three marks of hypocrisy. By the way, there are probably an infinite number of marks. Jesus just mentions three here. I originally was going to, Jesus uh, uh, gives six woes in this passage. He gives three woes to Pharisees and three woes to lawyers. And as I was studying it, I thought these lawyers are so bad they need their own Sunday. So we're going to do lawyers next week. <laughs> Forgive me, those lawyers among us. We're going to do lawyers next week. So this week we're just going to focus on the three woes that Jesus gives to the Pharisees. And, and really the, the woes that he gives them are marks of hypocrisy. And then finally we're going to, we're going to ask ourselves, is there hope for the hypocrite? And, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of my goal this morning is to make you feel the discomfort that I've experienced the, for the past couple of weeks thinking about this. In fact, that last point, hope for the hip, hypocrite, I thought last night I need to add that. I only had two points until last night and I was thinking about it. I said, man, if I had to deal with nothing but you know, being confronted with my hypocrisy with no hope, it would not be a good Sunday afternoon. And so the three things we're going to look at are these, basically these three, the heart of hypocrisy, the marks of hypocrisy, and then finally hope for the hypocrite. And so what is the, what's the, at the heart of hypocrisy? So notice in verse 37, it says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So remember, this, to set up a little context here, Steve did a great job the past two weeks uh, uh, 
sort of preaching us up to this point. Remember last week, Jesus was speaking to all the crowds, and to the crowds, he was talking about the sign of Jonah and the fact that the people of Nineveh someday will, will rise up and judge this unbelieving generation, and that the queen of Sheba one day will come, and she will judge you, Israelites, for not believing in the one. You're not going to get any more signs, and you have to wonder if the Pharisees thought, well, he can't be talking about us. He must be talking to all this sort of unwashed hoi polloi. And so one of the Pharisees went to Jesus and he invites him to dinner. Teacher, why don't you come to dinner with us after this? You know, we can get away from the crowds. And so he goes to dinner with the Pharisee. He accepts the invitation. And when Jesus goes in, he apparently intentionally does not wash up before dinner. (gasps) That would have been a big deal if you were a Pharisee. You see, Pharisees, you often hear me say they get a bad rap. In many ways, they preserved Israel because they they preserved the law and they preserved the traditions and they wanted to do that because they thought if they did that, that eventually the, the Messiah would come. On one hand, on the other hand, they could be a little tightly wound, right? And one thing that's an important point of information about Pharisees as a general rule is, you know, you have the law, the old, the Bible, And then you have the oral tradition about how the law ought to be obeyed. Well, most Pharisees would have said that the oral tradition is as authoritative as the law. And so there are cleanliness laws in the Old Testament, and they they develop this tradition of ceremonial washing before uh, meals and things like that that wasn't in the law. So to, to wash ceremonially before a meal was not dictated in the Mosaic law. But it was dictated in their Mishnah in in their commentary on the law. Now, what did that look like? Why did they do that? They weren't concerned with with, uh, personal hygiene, to be honest with you. They were concerned about uh, ritual cleanliness. And in fact, more than that, it's sort of what the idea was is that you've been out all day mixing with the, the unwashed masses. And when you come into the house, it's not that you're washing their uh, germs off of you. You're washing their sort of uncleanness off of you. There's a little nasty so you get it off of you. And Jesus goes in and he doesn't do that. Now, by the way, let me read to you what, what that looks like. This is from their commentary about what you should do before you have a meal. And, I, and if you have ADHD, I'm warning you right now, this is going to be tough for you to hear. Um, so th- if you're going to wash ritually before me, it says the hands are susceptible to uncleanliness and they are to be rendered clean up to the wrist. Thus, if a man had poured first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist, the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. But if he poured both first the water and the second beyond the wrist and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone and then bethought himself and poured second water over the one hand, his one hand is clean. If he poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or the wall, it remains clean. Come on! Like dinner is now cold. And my hands still aren't clean because I can't figure out the instructions. If I was Jesus, even if I wasn't Messiah, I probably would have skipped that part of the meal. But Jesus skips it on purpose because he wants to make a point. Because did you notice what happened? Jesus skips it and the Pharisee doesn't say anything, but clearly the Pharisee and all of his buddies are like, (gasps) they could not believe that Jesus didn't do this. And Jesus, as is often the case, he responds not to the Pharisees, the words that comes out of his mouth, But he responds to what he sees happening in his heart. And Jesus, frankly, is not meek and mild Jesus here. He's sort of like um, scolding in your face Jesus at this point. 
As you get in the Gospel of Luke, this, this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is growing. And Jesus actually just goes right in and begins to address their issue. So notice what he says. The Pharisee, verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Let me just make a side note here. If you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, for that matter, to take offense at sin is not necessarily holiness. And it's not necessarily a mark of maturity. In other words, if you look at someone else and you go, I can't believe they're doing that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're holy now because you're offended by what they did. Oftentimes it's not a mark of maturity, but it can be a mark of immaturity. And Jesus, that's not the, the point here. Jesus jumps in. He says, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. And Jesus, he mixes metaphors here. The Pharisees, of course, had lots of laws about dishes, and, and they had a law that with regard to fly impurity. Imagine fixing everything and getting it completely clean, and then a fly lands on it, and you've got to start over. It drive me crazy. But that was how it worked for them. And Jesus says, you spent all of your time cleaning the outside of the cup. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. So in the same sentence, he actually mixes metaphors and transitions from dishes to hearts. From what is outside to what is inside. And so if you want to know what is the, what's the, at the heart of hypocrisy, at the heart of hypocrisy is an incongruity or, or a disconnect between what is inside of you and what is outside of you. Or what is inside of you and what you are trying to get people to see about you. Right? And the, the word hypocrisy comes from the Greek theater and it actually has to do with wearing a mask. So if you are a hypocrite, what you're doing is you're wearing some mask that, that is one thing to hide what's really inside. And Jesus says of you Pharisees to them, he says the outside looks clean but the inside is full of greed and wickedness. In other words, it doesn't matter how clean you are outside, as long as the inside has got the greed and wickedness in it, we still got a problem. There still is an issue here. And he, he goes on further to say something that no one would have said to religious leaders of those days. He says, you fools. That would be a pretty bad accusation in the, in the New Testament. Because remember, the, the, the worst thing you could possibly be in the book of Proverbs is what? It's a fool. So these guys are the teachers of the law. They're the ones that everyone says, so what's the Old Testament about? Jesus is saying, you who are supposed to know the Old Testament, you are actually fools. Why are they fools? Jesus says, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? In other words, in the, in the book of Proverbs, the, the definition of a fool is someone who, who does not understand a system and because he or she doesn't understand a system, he doesn't act appropriately. You're a fool. Or, even worse, it's if you do understand a system, you understand the way something is supposed to work, and you buck against that system. You don't apply yourself. You also are a fool. And what is Jesus saying here to the Pharisees? You're spending all of your time making sure that your outward appearance is clean as a whistle, that it looks good, that, that everything, if someone looked at you, they would have no question as to how spiritual you are. But you were a fool because you don't realize that the one who made the outside of the cup also made the inside. In other words, the only person that matters actually sees both the inside and the outside, and that is God himself. 
You can hide all you want from your friends and from your people, but you can't hide from God. You can make it look like things are clean, but they're not. Right? How, how many of you have ever done this? Right? The, the, I'm just going to admit in my family, every now and then, Judy will say, the Joneses are coming over to dinner tonight. Throw everything in Abby's room and shut the door. And our house has become so much cleaner since the two kids went to college, right? Just, what is, what are we doing? Or how, we, we actually have some, some stuff we need to deal with, but it's easier just to put it in the back and act like everything's cool. The Joneses usually don't care. They don't ask, can I see your bedrooms? <laughs> well, no, you can't. <laughs> they don't. But Jesus is saying here, you can't fool the only one that matters, and that's God himself. God sees what's inside, God sees what's outside. If you are a, a human being, the reason you wear a mask is because you're afraid of what people are going to see inside. You might be uh, an upstanding citizen, you might be, be, be very uh, highly regarded in your community, or you might be pretty lowly. You might be someone who you think, if people knew how sinful and rotten I was and the things that I have done, the relationships I've destroyed, they would never talk to me. And because of that, I better wear this mask into church. Because as long as I'm wearing this mask, everyone's going to think I'm cool. And if that's true, you're sort of a fool. Because the only one that matters, God sees God sees the self-righteous person and he sees the guilty person. The person who thinks these people would never understand how bad I am. You would be surprised, I bet. You would be surprised. So the heart of hypocrisy is his incongruity. What does Jesus say, say is the, response, the, 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 the remedy for them in verse 30, 41? He says, but give his alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. This is a, a notoriously hard passage to, to, to preach on because you get caught up. What does he mean by say, give his alms, those things that are within? I think Luke is just using a sort of literary device because he has just said inside you're full of greed and wickedness. And the remedy is for your heart to be full of charity, basically, for your heart to be full of ge generosity. But where does that start? He says it starts, um, work up, behold, give his alms, those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. I think this is a fancy way for Luke to say, if you take care of the inside, the outside will take care of itself. In other words, if you, if you want to be beautiful, if you will, start working on the inside, don't work on the outside. I'm amazed. I was a church planner in Capitol Hill, and I was always amazed to see people come in, and, and, and especially for some reason, it seemed a more stark contrast with women. They would come in, and they would seem almost frumpy and angry and sort of cower down, and at some point, they would become a Christian. And suddenly, they would blossom, and suddenly, there's this beautiful woman sitting there. Where was she this whole time? Well, she was behind that mask, that shtick. And Jesus says, work on the inside, change the inside, and the outside will start to reflect what is inside. So what, is, what are the marks of hypocrisy as we continue to move on? Notice the first one, verse 42. He says, woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These ought to have done, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. By the way, all three of these marks are going to take the form of, I am a hypocrite when... Right, And so this first mark, where he's talking about tithing of, of minor herbs, you, basically, I, I'm a hypocrite when I consistently, scrupulously major on minor things and minor on major things. 
Notice what the Pharisees did. He says, woe to you. And by the way, woe is not a threat. Woe is more like a... Um, you know, sometimes when my, my assistant will come into my office several times in the same day to, to ask me questions, at some point, I'll, I'll sort of... Ju- but just to be fun, I'll go... <sighs> to say woe to someone is almost an audible version of that. It's like, I can't believe this is going on. Woe to you. It's more like, alas. It's not a threat. It's more like a a regret that this is the direction that you're heading. And so he says, woe to you, Pharisees. And he says, you tithe mint and ruin every year, but neglect justice and the love of God. So the issue here is the Old Testament definitely says that, especially that Israel should be tithing. It's 10% of their their, uh, produce and 10% of their livestock, all of these kinds of things. And the Pharisees said, well, if you're supposed to uh, tithe 10% of all your big stuff, well, it must be even better to tithe 10% of every single tiny little thing, even if it's not required in the Old Testament, like mint and rue and other kinds of herbs. And so how would you even get 10% of a little bush? Well, that's what they did. And I was thinking, how would that even look? It would be as if Judy said, Tommy, come on, it's time to go to church. And I'd say, wait a minute, I'm getting our tithe together. And she came to the kitchen table, and I was literally counting out grains of salt to make sure there was exactly 10%, and then go through the pepper, and then go through the basil, and then go through the oregano, and say, wow, I don't know, we know what to do with the celery. You know, it's like, what do you do? And you take all this stuff that you've meticulously counted out, and on your way to church, you pass by poor people, you pass by single moms that can't, that aren't making it, you pass by all of these things, and you feel so great about yourself because when you get there, you've given exactly 10%. No more, no less. It's exactly what God requires. Jesus says, you don't get it. Because the major thing is justice and the love of God. The major thing, right, justice in the New Testament, by the way, and the Old Testament, almost it always has to do with taking care of the poor, taking care of the dispossessed, taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. And he says, you Pharisee, you major on minors. No one even asked you to tithe those herbs, and yet you neglect the poor, and you neglect the love of God. You see, you're a hypocrite when you major on minor things, and you minor on major things. Do you do that ever? Do you ever really get wrapped around the axle about something that is, at the end of the day, sort of inconsequential? I mean, think about the gospel. What is a major thing in the gospel? Well, a major thing is a lot of people don't know it. (laughs) A major thing is that that we ought to be out uh, actually being a blessing to our community and all of these things. And yet churches, oftentimes, I was just at a presbytery meeting, which is a a great opportunity to rub elbows with, you know, a hundred other pastors, all of whom have the same problems, issues that every other church has. And... And most conflict in most churches are not about major issues. Most conflict in most churches are, are about minor issues. They're about opinions. And you, you, I am a hypocrite when I major on minors and minor on majors. But it gets, it gets better, right? Um, the, one of the stories I had written down, do you, do you, have you ever seen the famous, uh, it's, it's Tony Campolo, it's a very famous uh, sermon he preached now. You can see it on YouTube if you want. Where he basically stood in front of this crowd, he's preaching on how we ought to be caring for the poor. And in the context of his sermon, he said a four-letter word. Right? Started with S. He said it. 
I mean, he just said it plain as day, and he said it loud, and he said it clear, and he said it so everyone could hear it. And then he let it hang in the air, and he said, the problem that we have right now is that you care more about the fact that I just said that word than the fact that 10,000 kids are going to die before the day is over. That's a great example of majoring on a, on a minor and minoring on a major, right? And so the next thing that, that Jesus goes to is, uh, notice in verse 43, uh, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. So where does that take us? Basically, I'm a hypocrite when I crave recognition for my spiritual accomplishments. I would say you're probably a hypocrite if you crave recognition for any accomplishments. That's what the Pharisees' issue was. I told Jamie before the service, like we were walking out, and I said, this might be the last week we feel comfortable sitting in those seats right there. Um, <laughs> They said, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greeting in the marketplaces. Well, in the Jewish synagogue, the more righteous you were perceived to be or the more, more spiritual you were perceived to be, the closer you would be allowed to sit up front. And if you were really the cat's pajamas, right, you actually got to sit in those chairs facing the congregation, which makes me laugh. They think the irony that, like, the, <laughs> that I have to sit in that chair looking out, right? Uh, the Pharisees longed for that. They jockeyed for that. They wanted people because it was, a, it was the evidence to the rest of the congregation of their spiritual accomplishment. Look at how much I've mastered the law. Look at how much I've mastered all these minutiae. Look at all of these things. Look at me, really. They craved recognition for their spiritual accomplishments. And not only that, when they walked through the, the marketplaces, it says they want people to greet them. What's going on with that? That basically, um, that greeting, it, it's even the same to this day. So let me tag it from this angle. If you're ever in the military, you know that in the military, it is the responsibility of an enlisted person to initiate a greeting or a salute to an officer. In other words, you have officers and enlisted, you have superiors and inferiors, and when the inferior is approaching the superior, the officer, the, the enlisted person will snap to and say, in our case, we'd say, Rangers, lead the way, sir, and our officers would respond all the way. And if you didn't do that, you would probably end up in a lot of trouble. Well, what's going on with the Pharisees is the Pharisees expected that when they walked through the marketplaces, that all the inferiors would greet them, not the other way around. In other words, so you wouldn't find a Pharisee going through the marketplace, hey, Bob, you know, it's like, uh-uh. You walked through and you expected everyone else to greet you because of your great spiritual accomplishments. You wanted recognition for that. You needed recognition for that. Now the problem with craving attention for your spiritual accomplishment is that you probably don't understand, at least the gospel of Jesus, that someone else has accomplished everything you need for you. And if someone else has already accomplished everything you need, you don't need recognition for your spiritual accomplishments. In fact, your spiritual accomplishments ain't all that. I think I've told this story here before, but when I was very first ordained as a pastor, I was telling, regaling our music guy in Atlanta with some tales of, the, of, of things that I'd been doing during the week. And he just sat there, and he, it was in the hallway. He didn't have the common grace to take me inside and sit me down. He said, Tommy, he said, I don't think you believe Jesus loves you. I said, what? And he said, you know, every time I talk to you, all I hear about is your accomplishments and what you're doing and how much you're doing this, how much you're doing that, and how much you're, what a great pastor you're doing this. And, and he was right. He was right. I mean, that, that conversation in the hallway sent me on this huge tailspin. Maybe, you know, it sent me to Luther's lectures on Galatians. It sent me to spiritual depression. It's causing cures. So I finally had to figure out that in the gospel of Jesus, 
He has accomplished everything. Everything has been accomplished. And because of that, I don't need to boast in my accomplishments in order to receive your favor. And vice versa. Jesus would say to them, you're hypocrites because you long for this spiritual uh, uh, recognition for your accomplishments and you don't need it. If the gospel's true, it's already been done and will already be done. So that's the, the first two. What's the last one? The last mark? The last one, at least for the Pharisees, was the most damning for them. Because it was the most damning and it was the most sort of ambiguous, but it was also the most clear. Notice what he says in verse 44. He says, woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. What's, what is the, I'm a hypocrite in this one. I'm a hypocrite when I'm spiritually dead inside, and nobody knows it. Not even me. You see, there's a reason why the Pharisees were, were unclean on the inside. It's because they were unclean on the inside, because they were actually dead on the inside. Their hearts were dead on the inside. And the, the accusation that Jesus gives to them... Now remember, these are the men who are responsible for teaching everyone else the law. And they were the sort of self-appointed sheriffs for making sure everyone else maintained ritual purity. And what Jesus says to them, you are like unwashed, uh, unmarked graves, and people walk over you without knowing it. And what's his point there? Remember Matthew, Jesus says they're like whitewashed graves, full of dead man's bones... Well, the reason they would whitewash graves is so that you could avoid them. Because to walk over a grave, whether it was marked or unmarked, would render you unclean, ritually unclean. And so if a grave was whitewashed, you could see it and you could make your way around it. And what Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you are like unmarked graves. That not only are you not the ones who represent purity in Israel, but by people's contact with you, they are defiled. That, that you are full of dead man's bones. You're dead inside, whether you know it or not. And that may be even the, the most damning because how can, you, how can you rely on the record of another if you don't know the record of another as it exists for you? How can you rely on forgiveness of sins if you don't know forgiveness of sins exists for you? Because you're still dead inside. You have not been made alive by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2 says we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but Christ made us alive by his spirit. When, when Nicodemus went to Jesus, he, Jesus interrupted him and said, Nicodemus, let me tell you something. The only way you can enter the kingdom of heaven is if you're born again, that the Holy Spirit has to do something to you. And there's a sense in which Jesus is telling the, the Pharisees, you guys don't get it at all, but you don't see it either. Because you're still dead. And because you're like graves, peoples, uh, you, you are to be avoided, not to be pursued. You are the ones who, who are actually harming people. So where does that leave you? Right? What if you don't know? What if, what, what if you don't know that you're, you're an unmarked grave? What if you don't know that you're dead inside? Well, here's the good news of the gospel. If, you're, if that worries you at all, I guarantee you the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. If that worries you at all, if, if you have this feeling like you need, maybe you ought to be trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of sins rather than all this other junk that you've been relying on, that's pretty good evidence that you're not dead and you need to pursue Jesus. So what's the hope here? Right? Because if you think about hypocrisy, you and I are just completely, we're riddled with it. It's almost like you can't escape from it. What's the hope for hypocrisy? Well, the hope for hypocrisy is pretty simple. It starts with a J, right? Hope for hypocrisy is Jesus himself. The very one who is calling them out on their hypocrisy is the only one who can help them with it. 
And in fact, the reason he's calling them out on it is not because he hates them, it's because he cares about them. If someone cares about you, they will actually say, the mask is not working for you. This, try this instead. You see, here's the, the great news of the gospel of Jesus. Remember, 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might be the righteousness of God in him. In other words, if you have trusted Jesus or if you will trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, he takes all that ugliness, all your sin and that mask that you use and he puts it onto Jesus and crucifies it. And he takes all that Jesus is, all of his goodness, all of his rightness and gives it to you. And so now, if you're a Christian at least, and you're wearing a mask, you're actually wearing a mask over something infinitely more beautiful. You have the righteousness of Christ. And if you have the righteousness of Christ, you don't need to cover it up. Why would you? And to cover it up is just pure folly, and yet all of us do. That's why I tell you the same thing every single week. Let me tell tell you a story. Some... I probably will schedule some time where you guys can come hear about all this stuff I've been going through. Remember I posted on Facebook, if you're on our Facebook news page a week or so ago, I said, you know, I'm I'm going to phase two of my communication camp, and and this part is supposed to be a little bit more uncomfortable than the first part. That was a tremendous understatement. I mean, really, it was. Because what part two was about was about to use our terminology today, was sort of uncovering your hypocrisy. They call it your stick. In other words, I, I had the benefit of, of 20 people and a lot of information, and they have a very accurate, precise way of identifying all of your issues, telling me, Tommy, here's how you come across. Here's the mask that you put on when you are threatened. Here's the mask that you put on when you are fearful. Here's the mask. And guess what? It is ugly. Really ugly but you know it was great I, I actually volunteered to do it for the whole group because i thought if the gospel's true you know well why not it's a secular thing by the way and everyone was surprised at the end because at the end of it it was so brutal at least it seemed that way that one of the head guys said tommy are you okay i said i'm actually doing great he said what do you, what do you mean he said what do you feel right now i said liberated Why would I feel liberated for all my junk to be revealed? Because if all the trash and all the garbage is revealed, guess what? No one can hold it against you. No one can call you on it. And you don't have to act like it's not there anymore. And once you don't have to act like it's not there anymore, you can actually begin to say, what actually is there? And what's there is the righteousness of Jesus. By the way, by the end of the week, they do this thing for purpose. They... they it becomes quite glorious by the end of the week because you realize that the way you respond to things is one way, but the way God created you to be is, is unique and different than anyone. All of us are like that, by the way. I mean, while I was there, I just longed for that in our church. You know, one, one of the weird thoughts that I had as I was going through all that is I began to think through our church and I thought, you know, Tommy, there are people who've been here, you've been here for 10 years, and there are people here who I can't remember having ever seen smile. Some of our, our some church people, I, I, have I ever seen this person or that person smile? And my heart longed for them to be able to remove that mask and to, to be able to shine forth the one that Jesus has given, his righteousness, his glory, his hope. That's what is offered to you and that is what you possess. So let me leave you with this one thought. You know, you, you often hear the, the church is full of hypocrites. Right? Have you ever heard that before? 
church is full of hypocrites. And I'm here to tell you that's absolutely not true. There's always room for more. Always room. So think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I just pray this morning that you would, um, you would really enable us to leave here today uh, with the grace of being able to, to, be, to be able to ask ourselves in any given situation, uh, am I going to respond to this with my mask or am I going to respond to this with the, with the righteousness of Christ that I also bear? Um, am I going to, to, to live out uh, this, this fake lifestyle that I've built for myself? Or am I going to live in the freedom and the liberation of knowing that Jesus has taken that all away? In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen.